Father in heaven, we, again, we invite your presence here today that you would be the one to guide our minds and our hearts and give us your thoughts and your wisdom. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, there's sheets right there. And, uh, Let's go. We have so much to cover in only two more days. <laughs> really so much to cover. Okay, now, is this okay? Can you see that okay? Or? Okay, so, you know what Genesis 1.28 says, that the Lord blessed Adam and Eve and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, uh, Lori, fill the earth, here, People don't see that too well. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion and so on. Okay? And uh, if we can think about this a little bit, we, obviously the Lord placed us on planet earth, right? And he told us to be fruitful, to multiply, uh, fill the earth and subdue it so, and have dominion over it. So the Lord is saying, this is where you live. And there are resources in this earth. Uh, you know, iron and just resources galore. This is where he put us. Of course, he gave us a mind to, to use the resources on this, on this earth. And I'm simply saying that, you know, the Lord intended for us, this is our home, this is where we live, this is where we are to make a living and really to use the resources the Lord has given us. And I say that what I'm talking about here for the next few minutes is the principle of private property, okay? Principle of private property. As we saw yesterday, this is very important. It's very important. Uh, The very idea of freedom, especially economic freedom, uh, lends to the idea of private property. Okay. If we can't use the talents that the Lord has given us and be able to be rewarded for our labor, then that's, we call that slavery, right? right. <laughs> so, private property. Here we find in Genesis 23, 17, 18, the field of Ephraim was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, the field, and the cave which was in it. And all the trees that were in the field, which were within all the surrounding borders, were deeded to Abraham as a possession. Abraham owned this property. He paid for it. He owned it. Again, we find later in Genesis 49, verses 29 and 30, that Abraham, what does it say? That uh, then he charged them and said to them, Bury me with my fathers in the cave, the cave that Abraham had bought. I think this is Jacob talking, actually, if I remember right. And uh, bury me there. So this property that Abraham had purchased was passed on. 
It was passed on from generation. Okay? Important principle. Again, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. It is Jacob. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. So here we see Abraham owned property. Okay. Absolutely. Here again, uh, we see a reference to Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought the parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. So again, we see uh, the patriarchs purchasing and owning land, owning property. And of course, we have enshrined in the Ten Commandments this statement, you shall not steal. Well, to steal is to take something that doesn't belong to me, right? Right. And so the implication is very much of private property, ownership, or perhaps a better word is stewardship. Because we know the Lord owns everything, but it is given to us as stewards. Yes? The biggest thief in the world is communism. The biggest thief in the world is communism. They take away everything. They take away not only the things, but the... The, uh, the means of production. That's the problem. Okay. Uh, Ephesians 4.28. We see this reference. Let him who stole steal no longer. Referring back to the commandment. But rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. So there you see. On the one hand, stealing which obviously is an implication of private property, but the Lord's will is that same person who used to steal uh, would work. That he have, may not only have what's his own, but have something to give to him who has need. Okay? These are not deep. These are not deep concepts here, but we have to, but they're important in all that we're talking about. Okay? Again, and uh, we may have read this the other day, aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, that you may lack nothing, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 10 through 12. Uh, there you go. This is Paul counseling the Thessalonians how to live. Quiet life, mind your own business, work with your own hands. Uh, Okay, let's. Now, here we come to Acts chapter 2, and this has been a source of confusion to many, many of us. Here it says in Acts 2 now all who believed were together. They had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So. There you go. And uh, I wanted to share the same verse in the New American Standard Version. Everything else is New King James. It says here that all those who had, who had believed were together and had all things in common. It says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It's a little bit different nuance here. And so what, what does it say to us? Here, they're practicing communism. Or socialism. Right, exactly. 
No, they're not really, because for several, for several reasons, okay? Number one, there's no government forcing them to do this, okay? So it's not socialism. Number two, here's the situation. People were giving their hearts to Jesus, and as a result were being immediately disowned by their families, which was the source of support. They were losing their jobs, okay? So here you had multitudes who, because of their following Jesus, making a decision, were in one accord, were, had no support. What were they to do? Now this here, and I believe this is, I can't come up with the proper uh, word right this second, but in Greek, this is a, this is not an aorist tense. This is not, they sold. This is, they began selling. Okay, they began sharing. It's not like they said, okay, I'm selling everything, boom. No. It was related to the need. Okay. Uh, now, we go over here to Acts chapter 5. You know the story about Ananias and Sapphira, how they sold their property. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit and the love and the power that was going on in the early church. And they felt inspired and they made a commitment, okay? They made a pledge. They sold their property. And then they got to thinking, you know what? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. And so they decided to, notice here, they decided to hold a good chunk of the money back to give some of the money, to, to keep the money that they had kept back secret and to live on the common possessions, the common um, pot that the church had formed. This is what's happening here. Okay? They lied. And Peter is very clear. And, and, and notice what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And then he says, While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? They didn't have to do this thing. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So their problem was not that they failed to give everything. Their problem was that they said they gave everything. Peter says, it was yours. You could have done with it what you wanted. Okay. So there we go. And uh, we talked about this uh, the other day when we were talking. Yes, we talked about this. And it, and it fits in here as well. Uh, so what I was saying here is that the New Testament does not teach socialism Okay. Here it says, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Okay, So here it's the family who's taking care of people. It's not the government. It's not the state. In any case, it shows you know, this believing man or woman, they must have some private holdings. They must have some private property, private money, whatever it is, if they are going to take care of their own widows. This implies that they have worked, they have saved, they've prepared for this day. OK? 
Okay. And uh, of course, in communism, uh, they actually taught, Marx actually said that all charity should be by the government. Private charity should not exist. Okay. And actually, one of our, well, okay, I'll just. And so this is not the picture here. This is family. Okay. And, and it implies, you can see, private property, private resources. Yes? That's a sore spot for me, and I want to make a comment. Okay, a comment. Go right ahead. Her house burned down. She went to live with her son. Yes? Her son told her to get out. Her son threw her out. That's beautiful. <laughs> so she went to somebody offered her a February to live in. Okay, somebody so, offered some place to live. That's good. She had no insurance on the house that burned down. Oh my. And you know, so the children take responsibility for the aging family. Exactly. But you must remember she may have burnt the toast, so she may have deserved to be thrown out, right? I don't know. <laughs> okay, okay, moving on here. Again, we looked at this the other day. If it will not work, neither shall he eat. Again, this implies private stewardship. That's really the word stewardship, right? I use the word ownership in contradiction to, say, socialism or communism, but really the biblical word is stewardship. But there can be no stewardship if everything we give to the state or even if we give everything to the church. Now, it's very possible, and, you know, and whatever we're going to go through in the future, that, you know, uh, whatever the Lord will lead us to do and whatever our circumstances are. But in normal times, or if there is such a thing, it's stewardship, private stewardship. Okay? And uh, here is this wonderful statement from the book Adventist Home, page 141, which says, Fathers and mothers who possess a piece of land and a comfortable home are kings and queens. No period on there. I hate that. Anyway, the author of the book Adventist Home did not apparently teach socialism. She's talking here about private property, living the good life. Of course, she's talking about getting away from evil uh, influences and so on. But still, in that context, those who possess a piece of land and a comfortable home are kings and queens. How true that is. Okay. She's not condemning this. Yes? I skipped that one because we covered it the other day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm, I'm uh, so much to cover, yeah. So this was actually the, our Bible portion for yesterday. And... Uh, I'm going to spend a little more time, and I'm going to tell you this. I was a very good boy. I went early to the uh, down. I didn't want to ask Shelly, but so I went early down to the office where they have the copy machine, and after all these years, it died. <laughs> It literally died, and they're not going to uh, replace it. They announced that in the meeting this morning, but that was, you know, at, at uh, 
nine o'clock or nine ten or something. So I don't have these, but I'm gonna tr and I what I was and I'm gonna try to have them for you tomorrow. This next few slides here, okay? Yes, Mondays, I had that in my hand. I was going to copy about 10 of Mondays. And so I, that's my plan today, definitely. Literally, yes. Yeah, I, I want to do that too. I want to get, I was trying to figure out whether I just get a list of emails. I can send you these and many other things, okay? Yeah. So, okay, here we go. This is today. Genesis 3.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Okay? God gave Adam and Eve something to do, didn't he? To work. Did he want them to be happy? Yes. Yes, he did. That's why he gave them something to do, right? Yes, Joanne? I know you think that's a little small. How about a whole sheet? Somebody else might have a bigger sheet. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. No, they're, they're not going to fix this copier. They said it's, there's no more parts for it. It's been a camp meeting for years. It's a big one, too. Okay. Here it says, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 50. So you want their email written out? Name and email. Name and email. Those of you who have email, uh, and I'll send you uh, some things. I'll send you all these notes, and, but I'll also send you some other stuff that we just have, don't have time to cover here. Notice here, our Creator who understands what is for man's happiness. I've got to make an announcement right now before I forget. When I go to the video today, please make sure that I take this off and put it here in front of this. Okay? I didn't do that yesterday. They, 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 it, it was okay. They, it worked. Uh, actually, they have the ability to make it louder when they edit it, but it's much better if I do that. Okay. Our Creator who understands what is for man's happiness, appointed Adam his work. Notice this sentence. The true joy of life is found only by the working men and women. Amazing, huh? This is an important principle when you're trying, when you're looking at people as human beings created in God's image, when you're trying to help people, very clear. The true joy of life is found only by the working men and women. So if, if we're not just trying to, you know, throw money at something, we're actually trying to make a person whole, that is, facilitate that. We can't do that, but here is a principle. The true joy of life is found only by the working men and women. Even God, when he created it, saw that it was good. Exactly, and even very good. Yes, sir. That's why there should never be such a thing as retirement. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's spoken by a retired person. <laughs> but, he, but, but he finds something else to do, though. We just got to keep him off the high ladders, that's all. Okay. God appointed labor as a blessing to man. We can never forget this. I know this is not rocket science. But we must talk about this at some point in this seminar. To occupy his mind, to strengthen his body, and to develop his faculties. In mental and physical activity, Adam found one of the highest pleasures of his holy existence. Okay? 
There again. Uh, here, I'm sorry. We, uh, we already went over these, but you want to have it anyway. Okay. Look at this, though. Think about this. This is strong language. God appointed labor as a blessing to man to occupy his mind, to strengthen his body, and to develop his faculties. In mental and physical activity, Adam found one of the highest pleasures of his existence. Yes, sir. One of the ways when you retire, go volunteer. Go volunteer. I volunteered for 10 years. Wow. I, I didn't think you were old enough to be retired even now. <laughs> anyway, I gave my knowledge to them, different things, and they really yeah. appreciated me. Yeah, I don't so think... Uh, and that's I, uh, the way to spend your Absolutely. Yeah, if you, if you don't do something, you're going to die young. And uh, we're stewards of our time, our talents, absolutely. Here we go again. And when, Adam and Eve, he was driven from his beautiful home and forced to struggle with a stubborn soil to gain his daily bread, that very labor, although widely different from his pleasant occupation in the garden, was a safeguard against temptation and a source of happiness. Amen. So clear. We can't... No human being can be happy if we're simply supporting them. It's, we're not doing them any favor. Yes, sir. I want to make comments because I'm hoping that my comments will help. Okay. You know, that's only I, yes. No, no, that's, no, we're not worried about that. Go ahead and make your comment. Yeah, my only I, problem is I got three more days worth to cover. <laughs> I not only volunteered 10 years, yes. good job for them, but I also made a lot of money, not from that organization, from investment. Yeah, that's what I want to do. <laughs> okay, not really. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. All right? Again, we already looked at this verse. We already looked at this verse. Those who are taught, Ministry of Healing, page 195, those who are taught to earn what they receive will more readily learn to make the most of it. And in learning to be self-reliant, they are acquiring that which will not only make them self-sustaining, but will enable them to help others. Amen. This is just... Um, this is a great principle. Those who are taught to earn what they receive will more readily learn to make the most of it. Not too terribly long ago, I shouldn't say this. Well, there's nobody here that could even vaguely guess who I'm talking about. I and one of my dear church members spent a... And I'm not saying we did wrong, I mean... But we delivered some heavy couches to a home where they needed some couches... And uh, I was visiting that home, uh, I don't know, three months later, and I, they, were, they were nice couches. They were gone. And they just told me, well, we're thinking about moving, so we just got rid of them. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, they had no investment in them whatsoever. I had a few hours back-breaking. No. But uh, anyway, and so there's the principle right there. I probably should have had some of them come and move those couches. Maybe they would have. I don't know. Anyway, 
We read this the other day. We may give to the poor and harm them by teaching them to be dependent. Ministry Feeling 195. Such giving encourages selfishness and helplessness. Often it leads to idleness, extravagance, and intemperance. Okay. No one, no man, no person who can earn his own livelihood has a right to depend on others. The proverb, the world owes me a living, has in it the essence of falsehood, fraud, and robbery. Wow, that's strong language. So we have to be careful, and we're trying to help people, that we're not leading them into this situation. Okay? And we quoted this the other day, too, from Muhammad Yunus, who we're going to learn more about here and just, just really right now, actually. Uh, Muhammad Yunus is the individual who won the uh, Nobel Prize for his tremendous work in helping the poor. And so what we're going to talk about, we're going to, I, I want, I, it's kind of like a class, you know, well, it is a class, so... There's, this is an introduction, and, and it's just good to be familiar with this individual and the work that he's done. And, uh, and so that's where we're, we're going to go now. I'm going to show a short clip. Let's see, it's not that short. It's nine minutes. And it just gives an overview of his work, how it got started. And then I'm gonna, we're going to actually hear from him uh, for a few minutes just as he tells how this thing has spread Okay, so let me uh, see, that should be here. Here we go. Now this is uh, something somebody has put together. It's a little bit fast moving, but hopefully uh, you can follow it, okay? How much money does it take to change the world? How much money does it take to make real and lasting progress against global poverty? Would a billion dollars be enough? 100 billion? For one man, it took just $27. $27 and a simple but compelling idea. That man is Muhammad Yunus, and his idea started a global revolution that has brought hope, opportunity, and pride to some of the poorest people on earth. So, who is Muhammad Yunus, and what was his idea? To understand Muhammad Yunus, you need to know where he comes from, Bangladesh. Although Bangladesh is a beautiful country with a rich culture, it is one of the poorest and most densely populated nations in the world. Muhammad Yunus was born in Bangladesh in 1940, and he was affected by the dramatic conditions there. But unlike so many of his fellow Bangladeshis, Muhammad Yunus was not born into poverty, which gave him access to important opportunities. As a result, he was able to go to good schools, get a quality education, and even go to college. Eventually, he won a scholarship to study economics in the United States. While Muhammad lived in the United States, he witnessed something there that changed his life. He saw the historic struggles of the civil rights movement up close, and he was deeply affected. Muhammad was particularly inspired by the movement's powerful commitment to social justice, and it stayed with him. When Muhammad went back to Bangladesh, he continued to be profoundly concerned about issues of justice, especially poverty. And as an economist, he wondered why. Why was there so much deprivation in his country? Why were so many people living in so much misery? He quickly realized that unemployment was not the problem. In fact, most of the people living in poverty in Bangladesh were working. They worked full-time at back-breaking jobs. The real problem was wages. Muhammad Yunus came to a profound conclusion about poverty. What creates poverty? 
what created this situation that human being has to be brought into this kind of situation where they have to beg for existence? Is this the fault of the person? Repeatedly I come to the same conclusion. There is nothing wrong with the people. Poverty is not created by the poor people. Poverty is created by the system that we have built, the concepts that we have created. That's what created poverty. As Professor Yunus studied the problem, he began to focus more and more on the issue of credit and the ability to get loans. With wages so low in Bangladesh, he realized the poor could never save up enough money to change their lives. The only way to rise out of poverty was to get access to capital. With loans, the poor could move to better neighborhoods, go to better schools, pay for college, get better jobs, even start their own businesses. But in Bangladesh, as in most countries, the poor do not have access to the kinds of loans that can change their lives. According to conventional wisdom, they are simply too great a risk. They have low incomes, no collateral, no history of credit, and belong to a group that is generally not regarded very highly. Fortunately, Professor Yunus was able to look beyond the attitudes of his time and challenge us to see the world's poorest people in a completely different light. And it all started with $27. In 1976, in the midst of a deep economic downturn, Professor Yunus left the comfort of the university where he taught and talked to poor villagers in the towns around his city. Although he didn't have much money, he realized it wouldn't take much money to completely transform people's lives. In an impulsive moment, Professor Yunus gave $27 from his own pocket to a small group of 42 craftsmen. But Professor Yunus made it clear to these craftsmen that the money was not a handout. He believed that charity only makes the poor dependent and vulnerable. Instead, it was to be a loan that they would have to pay back. And they were more than happy to comply. These craftsmen used the money to buy the supplies they needed to make and sell small crafts. They started their own business and paid back every single penny. And that's when Muhammad Yunus had his revolutionary insight. He realized that the smallest of loans could dramatically change the lives of the poor. In many cases, they just needed a little bit of cash to get some resources, materials for a small startup business that could give them a fighting chance. However, Professor Yunus knew that there was not a single bank in the country that would risk lending to the rural poor. So he took matters into his own hands, and this was the step that would start a revolution. Professor Yunus started his own bank, the Grameen Bank, focused on helping the poor, and he soon realized the demand for help was extraordinary. The Grameen Bank loaned small amounts of money, microloans, to a wide range of poor Bangladeshis, including farmers, craftsmen, and women, people who could not traditionally get loans. Some villagers bought dairy cows, then sold the milk to their neighbors, creating small sustainable businesses. Others used the money to open grocery stores or buy materials for making furniture. And then in some villages, people took out group loans to construct hand-powered wells that help supply drinkable water for the entire community. In all of these cases, the benefits rippled throughout the village. Professor Yunus reinvented banking and got rid of as many traditional requirements as he could. He specifically designed his bank to work as well as possible with the poor, whatever it took. If a requirement blocked out the poor, he simply got rid of it. No collateral, no credit checks, not even a written contract. It was revolutionary. The system is based entirely on trust, and the amazing thing about it is that it works. 
According to bank officials, 97% of the loans given out to the poor are paid back in full, a payback rate that has confounded the expectations of conventional bankers. Over the years, the bank has given out more than $13 billion in loans to over 8.4 million borrowers, helping to improve communities all across rural Bangladesh. And the system is clearly working. Since 1992, the poverty rate in Bangladesh has dropped from a staggering 56% to just 31% today. While the poverty rate is still high, it is moving in the right direction. The basic belief of Muhammad Yunus is simple. Poor people have enormous untapped potential. And by lending them money, we help them break the cycle of poverty and we can empower them to become constructive and contributing members to society in a way that benefits the entire nation and perhaps the world. The poor don't have to be a burden. In fact, they can be an incredible resource. It is a powerful idea and one that has proved to be extremely successful. Muhammad Yunus created a worldwide movement. There are now numerous banks that specialize in microloans and there are microcredit programs in nearly 100 countries all across the world. As of the recording of this video in 2014, Muhammad Yunus is now 72 years old and he continues to work with the poor and develop new ideas to help them succeed. He is a revolutionary thinker and a role model for our time. Okay, by the way, that was called uh, Muhammad Yunus, Banker to the Poor. Now this here is uh, Muhammad Yunus himself. I just want you to foul. I'm going to stop it uh, in about six minutes goes even further, all the things that have been accomplished. But uh, again, I, I think if we're interested in poverty, we, we have to have, you know, th I mean, this is, this is huge. Uh, and <coughs> Okay, so here we go. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So you give me a new title today. <laughs> so I'll just join the artist club. <laughs> Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and my job is to uh, report back to Peggy, Peggy Clark, who we have been together for long, long years. And in the meantime, we lost contact with each other, so I have a lot of uh, empty space to fill in with reporting what we have been doing since then. So this is something that, uh, you are familiar, absolutely familiar at the beginning, but gradually we moved on many different other things. Like you are familiar how Grameen Bank began, a uh, very small way in one village, and how it grew from there and became a bank. Started in 1976 with uh, $27, and then grew into becoming a bank in 1983. So since then, we have been working as a bank and expanded throughout Bangladesh and expanded its uh, influence in other countries including United States. One of the early repli replicator, that's very interesting, uh, was United States. It uh, came after we did uh, Malaysia, we did Indonesia, because everybody was telling us this funny thing that lending money to women can only work in Bangladesh. It will never work in any other country. Because Bangladesh is a funny country. <laughs> you can get away with kind, all kinds of funny things. So this is one of those funny things. So luckily, someone who was visiting us, a professor from Malaysia, became very interested. He said, oh my god, we, can do, we should do it in Malaysia. So that's why he went to Malaysia. Amana Ikhtiar Malaysia, he created an organization, it's still running. 
uh, and uh, that was the first replication ever from Bangladesh to Malaysia. Then everybody said, well, it must be something to do with Muslim religion. <laughs> it wouldn't work with anywhere, anywhere else. So then again, as luck will have it, the next country to replicate was uh, Philippines, which is a Catholic country. So you cannot anyway say that Muslim or something, no similar. Then they say, oh, it must be an Asian phenomenon. <laughs> That's when the U.S. comes in. <laughs> we didn't plan it that way. Simply I was invited by an unknown governor from an unknown state called Arkansas. <laughs> he invited me to help him set up grooming program in Arkansas. Who knows Governor Bill Clinton? I didn't know that. <laughs> so some friends help from South Shore Bank. Many of you know the South Shore Bank. Uh, I've just met Jen Percy, who was the link between South Shore Bank, us, and Bill Clinton. Because Jen Percy used to work in Bangladesh for a while. And uh, she became familiar with what we do in Bangladesh. And she knows Bangladesh. She whispered into the ears of Bill Clinton, because she was a very active supporter of Bill Clinton, that this is what you should do. And Ron and Mary comes along. They said, yes, I have, we have visited. It also looks exciting to us. And that was the beginning of replication in the US, in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, in 1986. So we just became a bank in 1983. You remember that. And a kid from United States trying to understand what this is. He comes to Bangladesh to understand what this is. He learned Bangla to do that. Alex counts. Yes. <laughs> so probably he starts by saying, Namaskar, come on, said. <laughs> I said, your Bangla won't work here. <laughs> you have to learn Bangla all over again. And he did Bangla all over again, but this time, not the formal Bangla, but Tangail Bangla. <laughs> So if he talks, uh, if you hear this voice talking, you know someone from Tangai village is talking. <laughs> so he spent his 10 years, 12 years, God knows how many years, became integrated. So this is our relationship that built in USA and so on. Today it expanded globally. And luckily we came back again in the United States, in New York City. In 2008, January, we started this Grameen program called Grameen America in New York City, because everybody was telling it won't work in the United States. It's proven. We tried in Arkansas, it didn't work. We tried in Chicago, it didn't work. We tried with Navajo Indians, it didn't work. We did with the Cherokees, it didn't work. I said, in every place you went, to, you did it the wrong way. So don't blame something just because you didn't know how to do it. So don't, no, 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 Dr. Yunus, you don't understand the United States. This is a rich country. In this rich country, your work in Bangladesh cannot be repeated. This is, their psychology is different, blah, 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 long speech. I said, you can tell, you can write books about it, but you cannot convince me. Because I can tell you that if, you, if, they do, if they are rejected by the bank, then definitely you need a Grameen Bank to fill that gap. Tell me whether all people in the United States can go walk into the bank and borrow money. So now there are many. I said, then you have a case. We have to create something like Grameen Bank. So okay, we, we, are, we are sure it won't work, but if you want to do it, why don't you show us? I said, give us the money and we'll do it. 
and someone in the audience says, I'll give the money, show us. So that's how Gamin America was created. It, the person who said, I'll give the money, was Bidar Jorgensen, what all of you know who are in this trip, because he's all along with us. And he enjoys doing that. Today, there would be, we started in January 2008. Today, there are six branches in New York City with 12,000 12, borrowers. And it works perfectly. Even, I will say, better than in Bangladesh. <laughs> because it's so disciplined, everything. Repayment rate is 99.4%. Average loan is $1,500. And people are so eager to take that $1,500. I said, I thought in Bangladesh only people needed money because it's such a des desperate situation. Here, here in this country, $1,500 doesn't get you anything. But that's the money they want to borrow and pay back very patiently, week after week, in tiny installments. These are the kind of things people were mocking, oh, this is a rich country. I said, country may be rich, but there are poor people. So we are not creating this bank for the country. We are creating this bank for the poor people. And if you have those people, it will work. And this is what it did. When I came, at the, when I was doing it in the beginning of Arkansas, I was uh, invited by Chicago University to talk about this because Ron and Mary organized a big conference with the businessmen and the intellectuals to talk about Grameen Bank. The professor in the audience says, well, how much loan you said you give in Bangladesh to a borrower? I said, maybe $25, $30. So no, this is not going to work because in this country, people will start up with $100,000 or $200,000. That's the money they need. And your bank, your program will not work in this country. I said, maybe. I've not done it. But if your country in the US, even a poorest person that I have in mind that wants to borrow right away $100,000 and $200,000, I said, you don't have poor people. So you don't need Grameen Bank. But if you have poor people, I said in Bangladesh our maximum loan is 5,000 taka. And in your case, it would be probably $500 maximum they will earn. Okay, so you get the idea there. And uh, now I'm going to show a, a couple different clips about what we're talking about is you know, micro loans or sometimes called microfinance, which is probably a better term. Uh, and this, you know, from these humble beginnings, this is an idea that has gone uh, many, many places and has been a tremendous blessing to many people. The first uh, video clip that we're going to show is an introduction of the organization called Hope International. You can Google them. They have their website. A lot of uh, video clips there as well as uh, some materials available. They build themselves as the first Christian organization to practice microfinance. And they have, uh, you know, very sp specific steps which involves a spiritual step. And uh, so we're just going to watch that and go from there. 
I had the chance to sit down with Peter Greer, the CEO of Hope International, and hear their story. Jeff, like many people after the fall of the Soviet Union, saw that this was a turning point in, in history, and they saw that there were incredible needs. And so Jeff and his church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, initially wanted to help. They ended up giving away food, clothes, anything that they could think of to help meet the immediate needs after the fall of the Soviet Union in a town in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. And after they did that for about two years, there was a pastor in the city, his name was Pastor Petrenko, and he pulled Jeff aside on one of these trips and he said, your help is hurting. Uh, and initially, Jeff was really taken by that, thinking, what do you mean? We're, we're here helping you. We're doing our model of help, which is you have needs, we have in abundance, and so we're going to give things away to you. And Pastor Petrenko realized that there were problems of dependency, there were problems in distribution, there were problems in even identifying the families that really had the needs and those that were just trying to get another handout. And so this comment from Pastor Petrenko, instead of that really causing Jeff to say, well, it's too difficult to help, we tried, let's go somewhere else, he really rolled up his sleeves and said, let's think more creatively about how we help address the problem of poverty. And what they found is that there were individuals in that town that had gifts, that had abilities, that didn't need another handout. They just needed the opportunity to, to start a small business. And so they started providing training. They started providing access to small loans and uh, really found that this model of providing capital and training in the hands of the poor really can make a much longer term impact than just the previous model of just let's hand out another gift, hand out another bag of rice. Hope International now operates in more than a dozen countries. It's one of a growing number of organizations doing what's called microfinance. Microfinance provides financial services to the poorest of the poor. It involves, among other things, extending loans sometimes as small as $20 or $30 so that people can start businesses, generate income for their families, and begin the climb out of poverty. In many cases, over 90% of the borrowers are women. If I'm empowered, with financial support to work and take care of my family. I can pay for health service. I can pay for school. I can do this and do that. All this brings about developments. Microfinance has done a lot of good, but even its greatest proponents agree it has to be done right. Otherwise, if you just lend money, people can actually be worse off than they were before. There are a lot of uh, problems in the uh, microcredit movement itself. The definition of microcredit is being uh, misused by many people. The editing under the sun is called as microcredit. So you need to clarify yourself. What do you mean by microcredit? What distinguishes microfinance, say, from the moneylender or the more modern ver uh, variant of that, uh, the consumer credit um, outfit, is that is exactly this merchant banking aspect that as a microfinance institution you have to know the business of your client now if you don't watch what the money is used for then chances are a large part of it is going to be used for consumption and if you borrow to consume you're not richer at the end you're poorer because you have to repay the loan and high interest on top of it and so what makes a microfinance institution really worth its name um, is the ability to detect among the thousands and thousands that would gratefully accept a loan those that will, that will become productive with that loan, that, that can turn that loan into value and, and, uh, and better their lives. It's not easy to do.
But the Gutenberg Finance Institution, that's, that's exactly what it does. Damian von Stauffenberg founded MicroRate, a company that rates the effectiveness of microfinance institutions around the world. What he's found is that the best microfinance strategies emphasize a holistic approach. Ibo Graham, a project manager at the Hopeline Institute in Ghana, echoes the same idea. Hopeline is a microfinance NGO. We have about 2,500 members. Every person who registers with Hopeline will have to go through a month of training on business management, bookkeeping. They have to understand insurance because we'll give them micro-insurance. They have to understand what savings is. We're teaching them how to save. If you save, you can be empowered. If all we're doing is extending credit to the poor, if all we're doing is giving individuals another access to a form of a credit card, there's going to be no lasting change. I think savings are critically important. I think training is critically important. I think micro-insurance is critically important. And I think the fourth leg of this aspect of spiritual poverty has to be addressed. And it's only when you're addressing all of those collectively that you're going to see significant change occur. We are a Christian organization. That's why we are spending time in educating them on how to spend and use money. We are supporting them through microfinance, but we are reaching them through evangelism and all those things for them to understand that this is business is a mission. You understand me? And they have to go through it in the Lord's way. And in handling that money, and you practice what we've taught you, you will succeed. There's a lot of enthusiasm for microfinance because it's a tangible way you can help someone begin the climb out of extreme poverty. So uh, I'm going to fast forward to another clip here. I want to just tell you that uh, in developed countries such as the United States, uh, you find a balance between small companies, large companies, and medium-sized companies. And these medium-sized countries I mean, companies uh, provide a high level of employment uh, in developed countries. And we find in a lot of these struggling countries, this is moving slow for me here. In a lot of these struggling countries, there's very large companies and the very tiny companies, but not the medium-sized companies. And, uh, and so you're going to probably hear a reference here whoops <sighs> probably hear a reference here to SMEs which is uh, just a reference to small and medium enterprises just give me a second here I goofed generate income for the family Wow, okay. Sorry about this. This is critically important, I think. It's not working for me. Bilba, Bilba, she stepped down from, she stepped down from, to look after, to look after. Exactly. And creating additional employment for thousands of others. 
leverage our communities out okay. of poverty. That's almost where I want to be, so I'll just leave it. Putting food on their table, shelter, health is provided, education is provided for their children. We begin to say no to poverty and begin to redeem the, the dignity of the citizens by virtue of creating business opportunity. Eve is one of the winners of the Pioneers of Prosperity Award, an initiative of the Seven Fund, founded by Michael Fairbanks and Andreas Widmer. The Seven Fund promotes enterprise solutions to poverty and connects investors to promising businesses throughout the developing world. Banks in the developing world are so monopolized and so regulated, they're so beholden to the government um, that they basically are in the business to lending money to the government. And so when an SME comes along and they want to borrow money, they get money. I've heard of, uh, just the other day, I heard of somebody, they said over one year they ended up paying 80% interest. You can't run a business like that. That's not a business loan, that's usury. That's what the Seven Fund is designed to address. They look for small, promising companies, partner with them, invest in them, and connect them with others. These are companies that are doing good things, doing it well and competitively, but they need a partner with capital. Partners worldwide pursue similar work in promoting investment. They also cultivate mentoring partnerships, both internationally and among entrepreneurs in their own countries. Charles Menz, for example, is mentoring an aspiring juice entrepreneur. Now the goal is to transform not only businesses, but lives and communities, and to scale the effort through networks at a grassroots level. We're going to form relationships, binational relationships, small, medium, and large businesses, you know, vary in size, but it's going to, they're going to be Christian business people. And we're going to focus on building businesses that uh, honor God. We call that now businesses ministry. We're going to focus on, on how the businesses are run, but our purpose is to create sustainable jobs, jobs that give dignity and, and wealth to families to provide in their community. And we'll focus on access to capital. We'll focus on technology transfer. We'll focus on advocating for, for a level playing field. We'll promote trade between our countries. We went to Kenya and met with business people. And Simon Nguero, one of the guys in that meeting, he was kind of the classic target uh, business because he had, he had 30 employees. And uh, we said, man, if we could have 10,000 Simons around the world and we can grow up from 30 employees to 50 or 100, we'll, we'll impact a lot of people. So we said to Simon, are there other people like you in your community? He said, oh, yeah. And he formed, within six months, he formed the first, what we call our affiliates, the Christian Entrepreneur Saving Society Chess. And so today they have over 400 business members. and. Um, they do provide access to capital, but they, they do training, networks, trade shows, and we have a team here in the U.S. that partners with them, and they leverage their impact as we have all over the world now. Some of the reasons people tend to be wary of business as a solution to poverty is they think that corporate... So that last speaker there, he, I mentioned the other day, uh, Partners Worldwide, uh, they're actually uh, based, uh, they're from Grand Rapids, Michigan here, and uh, do tremendous work. I think I want to just show real quick here. Uh, 
This is uh, their sign out in front of their building, which is on the far east side of Grand Rapids. Uh, notice that business people faithfully pursuing a world without poverty. And then this phrase, business as ministry. You know, uh, this is so important. We, I think, Seventh-day Adventists in the past have, you know, if you're going to be a missionary, then you're going to be a nurse or a pastor. But there are people now who, who have a full understanding and, and recognize that business itself, there are people who are starting businesses specifically uh, to be a ministry, to provide jobs and to minister to others in that way. In fact, there is a, I read one time, it's been a while ago, actually, before I got into this study, that there's actually a separate IRS designation for these types of businesses. Anyway, this is uh, Partners Worldwide. As I said, they're, they're right there in Grand Rapids. They're actually uh, uh, started by, at least, uh, Christian Reformed businessmen. They're in uh, 27 countries four different continents, uh, and as they say, breaking the mold of one-way aid and charity. In other words, being partners. 27 countries, address in 130 countries, so they have a ways to go, but they're doing a wonderful, wonderful work. There's no charity, it's coming alongside, it's loans, it's training, it's helping. Down in uh, Ch Chattanooga, Tennessee, there's an organization called Launch where uh, they are there to support, to help uh, poor people as they start business training and so on. Cultivate Holland. This is in Holland, Michigan, an organization. Uh, again, they're there to serve the poor, helping them in their business. You can see here, Coming up in uh, September, they have a class, Start Up Your Business class, How to Start a Business. And uh, they're actually using the curriculum uh, put together by Partners Worldwide. And then they have another class, which is being taught at the Central Wesleyan Church, Grow Your Business. This is an individual who has a body shop in Holland who uh, has been ministered to and helped by this organization, Cultivate Holland. So there's these are the types of things that are really helping people, if you don't mind me saying, in the right way. Okay? Now, I have about 10 minutes of video, which I really wanted to show at the end, uh, because it's, it, to me it's, it's very important. And, uh, uh, but I'm going to show it now for fear that uh, something will happen. I won't get, get the job done. But... Uh, I want to introduce that by saying probably your, let me see, I'll just say children here, your teenager uh, has bought into this idea, the zero-sum fallacy. In other words, you know, we have the, what is that movement called? Occupy Wall Street, whatever. There's the 1%. Okay? And, and the idea is that, hey, there's only so much out there. These people have this much. Therefore, there's only so much left with us. Okay? This is a fallacy. It's an economic fallacy. The reality is, is that people create wealth. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, bummer. So, the reality is, 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 is there's not just 
so big of a pie out there. Human beings, their creativity, their minds, their talents, they create wealth. There's no, you know, because they have so much, then there's none left for us. That, that is a false way of looking at reality. And this is, you know, every person is created in God's image. They have the power to think and to do. They can create wealth. Okay, and you're going to see that in this next 10 minutes. To me, it's very, very powerful, especially uh, toward the end of it. Corporations exploit people, and sometimes they do. They also tend to think that the economy is a zero-sum game. The zero-sum game is one of the great economic fallacies. It assumes that if one person gets rich, it must mean that someone else gets poorer. Well, that's reliant upon a static view of wealth. It's like a pie, the idea that there's just one pie and the pie can't grow. In market economies, in dynamic, open economies, what you find is that the pie grows. And this is very important because what that means is that everyone can start to get out of poverty. The zero-sum game fallacy can also lead to confusion about the role of population in development. The whole concept of enterprise solutions to poverty is rooted in the vision of the human person as creative. We don't just consume stuff, we produce. Now if you miss this and end up in a zero-sum game fallacy, it can lead to destructive policies that end up promoting population control instead of promoting enterprise. One of the big fallacies, economic fallacies that flows from the zero-sum game is the way that you start to think about people. You stop thinking about them as potential creators, instead you start thinking about them as just mere mouths. What that means, of course, is that you start looking at human beings and seeing them as a burden rather than something that can be inherently creative. And that leads to population control policies. Many people have heard of the Millennium Development Goals, which are supposed to be realized by 2015. But what many people don't realize is that one of the goals implicit to that is, of course, the control of population. They're very explicit about this. And the means by which they do so, unfortunately, includes, for example, abortion. Uh, and this manifests itself in all sorts of very strange ways. For example, it manifests in, this, in what many people call the daughter deficit. Because in many developing countries, when people have to choose what type of children they are going to have, be it a boy or a girl, for all sorts of cultural reasons, they will choose boys. Which means that in many developing countries, there's a huge imbalance in the gender ratio between boys and girls. In other words, girls, women, are the ones who are most negatively affected when it comes to population control policies associated with the Millennium Development Goals. And what's even more tragic, I think, is that some Christian organizations have actually signed on to these goals. This daughter deficit, or what The Economist magazine has called gendercide, is the result of bad economics. There's no correlation between population and poverty. It's also the result of a surrender of the Christian commitment to the dignity of all human life. Now, Christians have been the greatest force for charity and for wealth creation that the world has ever seen. Yet instead of taking leadership, too often we signed on to popular campaigns that are rooted in a false understanding of the human person. This is a lost opportunity for Christians to promote a vision of development rooted in sound economics and a proper understanding of the person. It's time to think and lead like Christians. 
many institutions also look at human life as, as a threat to social progress, let's say through population control schemes, uh, forced sterilizations. Those are impediments to social justice because they don't allow individuals to live freely. They don't allow the most primary institution of society, the family, to grow and prosper. We in Africa are resisting some of these conditionalities. And these are conditionalities that are coming from a certain philosophy, a certain cultural philosophy, which we think uh, are contrary to what we believe in. And this is where I believe that they force it down our governments through the IMF, the same culture. They force it down our governments through bilateral arrangements and agreements. They force it down our throats by offering medical facilities that only go contrary to the culture of life. They lead us into the culture of death. You know, uh, they go contrary to the civilization of love. Some people in the name of preserving human life and causing society to flourish think that we need to limit others. We need to limit the amount of life in the world and we need to to, to take away the mystery. Christians have to be absolutely committed to life. And what that means is that they can't fall prey to the secular arguments about scarcity. We have to understand that we have been given the creative potential to bring not only new life into the world, but new life out of broken things, broken cultures, broken fields, broken families. And we need to be better stewards of how we teach or equip people to think about that. History has demonstrated with indisputable clarity that people can grow the pie of wealth and discover new sources of wealth through enterprise and innovation. Now this insight is foundational for working with the poor because it reminds us that people created in the image of God are not the problem. People are the solution. Bangladesh was a food shortage country. We needed food from everywhere to feed our 75 million people. That's why we had a big famine in 1974 where our story begins. Uh, today Bangladesh with 144 million people is a food surplus country. When I was a graduate student 30 years ago, the received wisdom in every single book you would open suggested that China and India would never ever be self-sufficient in food, particularly in India. And when I left graduate school, the absolute certain sense from the best thinkers in the world was it was only a matter of time till there would be political upheaval in India. The population would outrun the ability of the land to produce sufficient food and um, that we'd never see the development of any wealth in India at all. Now, I was just in India. If, if one looks in India today, you see not just food self-sufficiency. The fact is, in India, India exports food, for heaven's sakes. India has a teeming population, and there's a growing sense that population growth is actually good for economic growth. Human beings 
uh, are not animals. Animals are the ones who go around and look for food all day and then get tired and sleep and the next day begins in search of food. Human beings are created for much bigger mission to take care of the whole planet and take it forward. is much more than a mouth that consumes. A human being is a mind that creates and that produces. And if we annihilate human beings in their creativity, either we repress their creativity or we snuff them out of existence, you're basically repressing human productivity. What creates wealth? People create wealth. The source of wealth is inside our head. It's, it's our creativity, something we've been endowed with. Now, if human creativity is the source of wealth, then people are the source of wealth. And if you have a vast reservoir of poor people living in these slums we refer to, that is a source of untapped wealth that far exceeds the biggest oil reserves you could possibly find um, underneath uh, your soil. Uh, it, that is really your source of wealth. That is, in a nutshell, what we're talking about here. Um, human beings, created in God's image, the power to think and do. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you can see the danger in not looking at the whole person and simply throwing money or whatever the gift is at them. Instead of recognizing that they themselves, I mean, there's short-term help absolutely positively, and I love it. But if we're just using it to hold people down, we are doing more harm than good. Okay. Yes? Would you suggest then that these smaller companies, Hope International, Partners Worldwide, would be a good financial investment for people to get into rather than, and knowing that that will probably do more good than some of the other bigger? Well, uh, these, are, these are organizations that are following a certain philosophy. And if you believe in that philosophy, now I'll say Partners Worldwide, I have their, uh, their uh, financial statements and so on. They, they're well, they're well financed. I, I think probably, I'm just guessing out of Grand Rapids, probably the DeVos Foundation is involved in that or whatever. Whereas Hope International is, is, is quite a bit smaller. Um, but uh, are doing a wonderful work, Hope International. So, uh, I have two minutes here. I just want to share something with you. This is sort of a letdown from that high place, yes? But I got to use all the time I have, yes? Right now, but later, tell me some SDA groups that 
Well, I'm pretty sure that Adder is involved in, in microloans. Uh, most, I mean, this, this has gone big. Yeah, they have a Go program. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that would be the only Adventist uh, organization that I know about. Pardon? Frontier Missions? Adventist Frontier Missions? Are they doing that? I'm, I, I thought they mostly just support missionaries, but I, I, I don't know. I'm just going to share something with you for one minute here. Might go one minute over. This is an article I found in my notes I was looking at last night. I mean, my uh, folder for this class. This is uh, May 5, 2016. There's bad news and there's good news in this little short article here. It says, United States to ship peanuts to feed Haitian kids. Aid groups say this is wrong. Okay, so here you see aid groups, praise the Lord, are learning, have learned. That's exciting. But here... It's the same old, what the man from Africa called, aid boondoggle, okay? And let me just mention to you that USAID, on their website, uh, from the very beginning, one of their stated purposes is to benefit American farmers. Here it says, uh, let's see if I can get out of your way here. On paper, sending surplus U.S. penis, and this is, by the way, from uh, uh, NPR, on paper, sending surplus U.S. penis to feed 140,000 Milner's Haitian school children for a full year sounds like a heroic plan. Instead, it's united 60 aid groups that are urgently calling on the U.S. Department of Agriculture to halt a shipment containing 500 metric tons of peanuts, preventing them from reaching Haiti. I'm, going, I'm skipping a few words to go fast. The aid group calls it crop dumping and warned that it will deliver an economic blow to struggling Haitian peanut farmers. Critics say it's poor aid policy that will have long-term negative impacts on Haitian communities. This is a country where peanut production is a huge source of livelihood for up to a half a million people, especially women, if you include the supply chains that process the peanuts, says Claire Gilbert, spokesperson for uh, this NGO, Grassroots International. How the USDA got stuck with a pile of peanuts stretches back to the 2014 Farm Bill, which included incentives. Incentive, that would be, uh, what do you call that? That's, that's subsidized, exactly. It means money. Encouraging American farmers to plant more. It worked. 2015, growers harvested 6.2 billion pounds of peanuts, and that number is expected to go up another 20 to 25% this year. That has left the USDA holding the bag with all these peanuts. To unload some of the excess, the agency announced a few weeks ago that it would ship 500 tons of packaged dry roasted peanuts to school children in Haiti, and so on. A statement issued, I'm skipping, from this group, from the aid group Partners in Health did not mince words about the announcement. We believe this is wrong. The well-known aid group has been working on health and nutrition issues in Haiti for more than 30 years and so on. It says, we're not talking about big business owners being put at risk by an input of peanuts, says Dr. Luis Ivers, Senior Health and Policy Advisor, Partners in Health. We're talking about small, very poor farmers that are dependent on a single crop. We really believe the dumping or donation, whatever your perspective, whatever you want to call it, will have negative consequences. Well, they went ahead and uh, made the and started the program, the USDA. They, they went ahead. Uh, well, this is an article called right there. You can Google that if you want. But uh, 
Yes, they, they, went, they went ahead in, in spite of the pleas of the uh, NGOs. Yes. Okay, uh, one and then another, and then we got to get out of here. Okay, uh, John, and then that'll be the last word. A lot of veggie burgers. Okay, so you can see this system is broken. And, and but I really wanted to end with a powerful recognition that every human being is created in God's image. They are the answer in most cases to their own problems. We must recognize that, partner with that, encourage that. We'll talk about that tomorrow. By the way, tomorrow I have some very powerful, um, very powerful video. Just you bring your Kleenex tomorrow, okay? Let's uh, bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the exciting truth that every human being has been endowed by you uh, with abilities, with uh, creativity, and so many other uh, gifts, birthday gifts, as it were. Bless us to, to work in harmony with these precious truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.